Hey, honeys, just a little reminder that you are enough. Go out and be free. So many of us as Black people just want to be left the fuck alone. Exactly. <laughs> like, just <laughs> leave us the fuck alone. Uh, but Karens can't do that. Karens and Brads can't do that. Child, please. Child, please. If you want it, you got it. Go get it. Child, please. Child, please. The world is waiting for you. Hey, y'all. Welcome to Child Please. We have another great episode for you. Um, What are we talking about today, Ivy? We are talking about navigating white spaces and AKA uh, code switching, AKA coloring between the lines. (laughs) AKA the Karens in our lives or the Karens that we come across. Yes, absolutely. We've seen so much of this in the news, so. Yeah, I think that's what's interesting. Um, You know, we were talking about this a little earlier about the fact that Karen has now become mainstream and it's sort of this phenomenon of being able to name behavior that Black people have known about for centuries, essentially. Like now there's a name for it. Now there is, but you have an interesting theory on that, which I, which I like. Well, yeah, no, I think that the Karen phenomenon is something that we have known about for a really long time, but there has never been this digital record of it in the same way. So since the advent of camera phones and us actually having personal devices at all times that we can we can record what's going on around us, there's now this proof of everything that we've been talking about. Like when we say microaggressions in the corporate world and we say, oh, you know, you know, you you have to sort of think about what somebody has said and try to interpret around what they've said, now you can actually be like, this is what she said. <laughs> and, and it's happened to our friends. It's happened to our family members. It's happened to our uncles at cookouts. It's happened to, and now it's just happening in front of a camera. And so finally people are actually being able to believe that this actually happens to us. Who knows what they'll do about it? You know, now there's a little bit of legislation, et cetera, but now they, they can believe what, what we are, have been saying for, you know, decades. Yeah, that, I think that's my thing. Like, first of all, I'm like, do they believe it? You know, I find like sometimes <laughs> they're explaining away, like with Amy in the park, in Central Park, at the bird watching, there's explaining away of her, of her behavior. So that's my question is like, okay, we've named Karen, gave her a cute name, um, which is also interesting to me, right? Like the name is pejorator. What's the, how do you say that? Pejorative. Pejorative pejorative, um, but it's still a cute name. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) So we gave her a cute name, but then what, you know, what'll happen? What'll change from this? You know, that's the thing that I think is interesting. And that I'm uh, tracking and observing of like, what, what's going to come from us naming Karen? Um, Yeah. Because then, you know, you think about the election and Karen showed up. (laughs) <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So it's like, what's going to change? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Having something in the lexicon doesn't necessarily mean that people really internalize its true meaning. Yeah. You know, it's hard to say where this will go. But it does lead us into the conversation about navigating white spaces and what that means for us gorgeous, melanated folks. What does it mean when we are navigating amongst white people? Because there are a lot of Karens out there and their husband's Brad. 
is that is that is, you heard it here first, folks? Brad, their, their the gun toting Karen's counterpart. <laughs> their gun-toting husbands, Brad. Or their laptop-toting husbands, Brad. Exactly, Shit. who are always out here trying to, like, you know, police the situation and step in. So we have to we have to figure out how we are going to manage those things and how well, we have managed over time. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, I, I Googled the definition of Karen, and it is a pejorative slang term for an obnoxious, angry, entitled, and often racist. <laughs> often. I love that. Middle-aged white woman. Middle-aged. That's also interesting. That isn't the only age of a Karen. Uh, who uses her privilege to get her way or police other people's behaviors. And I actually think this is an interesting definition, particularly for the word policing, because that is what takes things over the over the top, right? There are a lot of racists out here. Um, but some of them kind of mind their business. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> your friendly neighborhood like, racist. Your friendly neighborhood is just like, <laughs> niggas, and keeps moving. <laughs> but exactly. Karen's like, no, no. And they can't, They, you know, like just worked up in terms of uh, the policing of space, the policing, because it doesn't even have to be in white spaces, right, that this happens. The policing of space, the policing of our bodies, the pol- policing of our whereabouts, um, that really takes things over the top. Yeah, the people who just believe that you have too many packages coming to your house. <laughs> <laughs> that they need be. to investigate or it must be a crack den. I'm like, crack den, don't order Amazons. <laughs> but Because I, 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 I ain't no Amazon think- boxes coming to the trap house. That's not how that works. <laughs> I'm just like, any of this works. <laughs> so mo- so many of us as black people just want to be left the fuck alone. Exactly. <laughs> like just <laughs> leave us the fuck alone. Um, but Karen's can't do that. Karen's and Brad's can't do that. Um, and that's a whole psychological thing that that's the other thing that we don't get into, right? Like um the the psychology behind that and why that is. Um, but like you said, then we have to deal with it. So, so the onus is on us. But with that onus on us, what does that look like? How does it? How do we deal with this? How do we continue to move through the life and, you know, be with our families and have joy and and go to work and all these things? Just um, be regular. Just just, just be, be regular. regular. How do how do we do it? So how do you how do you do it, Ivy? You have worked in corporate America, which is a very white space for a very long time. What is what does that look like to you in terms of navigating these spaces? Well, you know, it's interesting. I got this question before on a panel discussion, and I realized. Well, what was the panel about? Was it was it about? I'm this? on a on a girl. I'm on a thousand panels. <laughs> People, but I mean, was it specifically panel. about? It's, it was a black panel about black women. And it was other black people in the audience. Gotcha. Okay. And they asked, you know, well, you know, how do you navigate some of the situations with racism, with this, with that? And I actually said, it's hard for me to answer that question, honestly, because I don't know any different. Mm. So if it'd be one thing if I had been in a predominantly black high school, predominantly black college, uh, HBCU, and then went on into white spaces and found myself having to do some mental navigation to figure out how to acclimate. But I grew up, I grew up in the South Bronx in a, you know, West Indian Caribbean neighborhood. Um, I went to elementary school with predominantly blacks and Latinos, Mm -hmm. but 
by the time I got to high school, junior high school, I was in a predominantly white junior high and predominantly white high school because I was smart and, you know, you take all the right tests, you end up in the right schools, you end up in these magnet situations where you are one of five black people in an entire school. I went to predominantly white college because I went to the Ivy League. You wanted to have the best education possible, blah, blah, blah. So I have been, my whole formative years were spent in a situation where I was always the only black person or the only black woman, me and one other black person. We had to become friends because, you know. Well, no, um, <laughs> but, but I just want to stop you right there because you don't have to become friends. There are some people, you know, the that like being the only one. I also want to say as you as you finish, like being formed in primarily white spaces can go different ways. Well, and you didn't go no. that way. I remember being like a third or fourth grader. And I was in my neighborhood. I was down at, we had a bodega around the corner from us that we used to go and buy these pickles. And I remember there was a boy there at the bodega who was sort of cute. Was in my nine-year-old heart, he, he looked like, you know, <laughs> that he was my, my Denzel Washington. And I remember he, he walked me back. We were walking back and I was just sort of eating the pickle, trying not to like mess this up. And I remember at one point I started to tell a story about something. He stopped and he looked at me and he said, you talk like an English teacher. <laughs> I was in the, like the fourth grade and it like, <gasps> like I didn't want to speak to other kids in my, like I just, I was like, they know. <laughs> they know I'm not one of them. <laughs> like somehow, you know, my mother trying to lose her own Southern accent had made mm. this waspy accent come to me, my brother, and my sister. And wait, we, ooh, that, I'm so fascinated by that. So it was an accent, like she made up an accent? My mother was raised amongst 12 children on a farm in the part of Louisiana that was not the cool Creole parts, but like Pofolk, Louisiana is a place called Colfax. Everybody there is kin to me. And my mother was one of the oldest of these 12 children. And she grew up, you know, in a one room schoolhouse, walking to school with all the kids around her, picking cotton and plowing before going to school, having to come wow. out of school during harvest times. Like this is what my mother grew up in. My mother had the deepest Southern Louisiana slow drawl you could imagine. And she, when she got to, she was one of the first people amongst her family to leave Louisiana to come up to New York to go to school. And the first thing she said she recognized that she needed to do was figure out how not to talk the way that she talked. Woo. Because you come to New York City wearing a coat that your, your mother had sewn for you, your first coat ever, because you had never had a winter. And you come up to the big city by yourself for the first time to finish nursing school. And you sound like what she sounds like, like what she thought a hick. Everybody, you know, made fun of her and she had to lose it. So That's my so mother deep. spent all of this time talk about code switching. Yeah. You know, this Oof. is the 1950s, 1940s. Oof. If she Oof. was going to get ahead, if she was going to, you know, ex excel around with, around her peers, she had to lose the accent and, or she thought she did. Mm -hmm. And so if you heard my mother speak when my mother was alive, she had the most perfect, like Midwestern diction you'd ever heard. And so I grew up sounding like this. I grew up as a little baby. 
little sister, my brother, in the South Bronx, <laughs> around the corner from River Park Towers, you know what I'm saying? Undercliff Avenue all day, Sedgwick and Burnside. I grew up sounding like this to the point where a nine-year-old boy called me out immediately. <laughs> That's very, like that was very teacher. astute of him. Uh, I know very horrifying to you, but very (laughs) astute to him. Because he didn't say you sounded white, which is like the go-to, right? Like, that's what I got, you know, growing up partly was like, you sound like a white girl. Um, And I did. (laughs) Uh, um, So I feel like when we were younger, though, the white girl was more of a valley girl situation. This is the 70s, 80s. Exactly. I mean, you you could pinpoint what, you know... "Quote unquote," a white girl sounded like sounded like that is what I sounded like. It was a New Jersey Valley girl. Yeah, straight up uh, square is, pegs. That is exactly what I sounded like. <laughs> so, you know, square pegs. If you know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but that. But um, luckily, I'm not like one of those because you know you you have black people who are bitter to this day because they were they were called. Like they sounded like they were white when they were in the second grade and they're still bitter to that day. But it's like we all internalized white supremacy. Like, why? how can I get mad at these other kids who were internalizing what I was internalizing? We were all internalizing the same Absolutely. shit. Absolutely. But that leads me to that. The, what I, the story that I was telling was just about I had been in those spaces for so long and sounding like this and I... it. It, it is a second skin to me mm. to... Do you feel like you're like, is, like part a of dual it is, language? It's just me. Mm. No, part of it's just me, right? Like if I'm, if I'm with other people from the Bronx, like the Bronx is there as with anything, right? But this is me. This is... And so I, it's not code switching. For me, it doesn't feel like code switching. The code switch for me, I mean, if you think about the definition, so like, like let's lay out the definition of code switching as, as defined by Harvard Business School. Mm-hmm. So code switching is adjusting one's style of speech, appearance, behavior, and expression in ways that will optimize the comfort of others in exchange for fair treatment, quality service, and employment opportunities. And to me, so it's not just speech. It's not just this. This to me is me. But for example, I'm one of the few corporate Americans that you will find out here in a head wrap at my office, you know, have on a fly dress, heels, and a head wrap. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's because I made a concerted effort at a a point in my life that I was not going to be this pinstripe shirt, like, you know, navy blue only, the wildest color you wear is a pink button down, like... I was not going to be that anymore. I was going to be what I wanted to be. And if people didn't feel it, then then I would find a tribe that did. But I had to make a, an actual decision about that. Well, I'm curious of what, what got you to that decision. And I just want to back up to this definition because yeah. I think it's really interesting to me that, you know, number one, it says optimize the comfort of others, but does it really say who those others are? Um, which to me takes away the weightiness of code switching, right? Because if you're just saying others as if, oh, I'm just doing it. No, it's it's rooted <laughs> in it's rooted in um, you know, the comfort of white people. That was my issue with the definition. It was the others part. And then the and then the other issue I have is the assumption that we are making an exchange that is actually going to happen. Right. So like the code switching is 
in exchange for fair treatment, quality service, and employment opportunities. And we all know that that ain't that ain't guaranteed. <laughs> like you can talk a certain way and look a certain way all you want, and the police will still roll up at your house, yeah, or you'll not still not get that an job. Exchange. It is yeah. proffered in hope that you will get those things back, but that's not yes. necessarily the case. I feel you on the the sort of like making the distinction between what does code switching look like. Like, I don't even know how I talk about code switching in the in this moment. You know what I mean? Um, because um, I'm not, I, 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 ha- I have worked in corporate America. Um, I do have friends who continue to work in corporate America and have to align in a very specific way. Because I work in creative spaces, you know, there is, more flexibility with appearance, right? Mm. Writers and directors should look cool, right? Yeah. There's also profit. And cool is often equals blacker. Blacker. And there, <laughs> there is profit to be made off of black cool, right? Um, but what you find is like they want you in the room, but they don't necessarily want your contributions, right? Particularly you'll see in writers' rooms where it's like, yeah, let's bring in black Black people to fill whatever guilt quotas, whatever they're feeling, but they don't actually want to hear from Black people. So there's still the the layers of racism around, you know, Black intellect, um, Black creativity, and all of that stuff. So I feel like the the racism in creative spaces just trickles out slower. <laughs> and it's it's more creative. <laughs> it's it's more creative. light. <laughs> it's 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 more creative. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, and it's it's under the guise of being liberal, but it's still racist as fuck. Well, that's hard to hear because you know you always imagine that there are going to be spaces or places that would have more freedom, and I think looking from the outside in, from a corporate world into the creative world. Most of the creative work that I've ever done has been amongst other Black people. Mm-hmm. So I was working in mostly Black spaces. More Black people, more Black people being able to feel like they're being more of their authentic selves, like dressing in a more authentic way, being able to curse when they talk, like all those kinds of things that feel like the look on the outside of the creative world is, oh yeah, there's the much more accepting feelings and there's much more acceptance of Blackness in those spaces. Yeah, it's acceptance and Blackness that doesn't come with uh, power, which is racism, right? So it's like, well, yeah, yeah, we love same, same. to have some some Black folks. You're so cool, cool, cool. But whoa, whoa, promotion, you know, <laughs> uh, you want a show run. You want to, what, what? You know, like that's when it's a different story. Um, but it's interesting because you'll hear black writers talk about the fact that, and black people, you know, that we are fluid in, in multiple languages that of, uh, and as a writer that you, black writers can write black people and black writers can write white people. Um, and it's often not the reverse because we have been around white people. So, so many of us have been around white people so much that we understand, that world. And then when you see white people trying to write black characters, there can be that lack of context, that lack of depth. So it's interesting because black writers would be like, I should be paid much more (laughs) because you're bringing in an asset that can write on dual levels. Well, given what you now know about these spaces and particularly in your creative field, how do you approach 
navigating those white spaces? What do you do that's different or has has your approach evolved over time? It it has actually. And you know, my approach has evolved as I have done more self-work uh, around my own power and authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, that we have been conditioned to fear if we don't show up as close to standard as possible, we'll lose things. And I just don't feel that anymore. I am very confident in my talent. I'm also very confident in the value that I bring as a 40 plus black woman into rooms Mm. and into spaces. So that's how I show up. Like I know I provide essential value. And sometimes I know that like I'm being called in for a specific reason. Like I'm being called in this meeting. They're looking for a black female writer. Um, And I don't necessarily have a problem with that, but I also know the value that that is. And that's millions and millions and millions of dollars from a, from a, quantifiable standpoint, right? But also like if you think about audience and and the reach and the power of black women, I yeah. am very clear on that. Um so the attempts to try to minimize my value, my contribution and the community that I am trying to represent, it just falls on flatters. So I then go into meetings I'm very clear. I say I don't write characters who happen to be black, I write black characters. So it's a character who happened to be black but say for a second, tell us what the distinction there is. So right? it's happened to be Black, but there is no cultural context of Blackness. Now, we all know that Blackness is not a monolith, blah, 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 blah. But <laughs> if, if you can slide anybody into this character, like, I'm not feeling that, right? Because often that's also how If you how can we... cast Reese Witherspoon in this role. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> she ain't a honey. And I love me some Reese. But, you know, she's not a honey, right? So what you'll find is that's how we, that's how Hollywood can get around sort of diversity quotas. They'll slide a Black person in there, but there's no cultural context and cultural specificity for this Black person. It's very similar in corporate America where you can be in a situation where you're there because you're Black, but it doesn't, they don't actually want to lean into that in any way. They don't actually want to create space for you to then use your Blackness as for what it could be, like a really valuable tool to say, hey, don't put that on the <laughs> on the billboards. Right. Or, Sweater will fuck you or, up. Or nobody cares about him and he ain't Black. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care how beige y'all think he is, he ain't Black. <laughs> um, but I, it, you know, it's interesting. I, I actually think about it in two different ways because I really believe that for me in corporate America, it's about building my personal brand. Mm. And my personal brand has black in it. Like, mm-hmm. it's not like my personal brand is, oh, she's really smart. <laughs> oh, she's No, my personal brand is she's black <laughs> <laughs> and she's really smart. <laughs> and she's a strategist and she's funny and she's all those other things. And I think that that idea of the corporate brand came from like, for me, two big pieces of, of insight that I gather, gathered while coming up through corporate America. The first one is that white people and black people live two very different experiences. Yes. And as much as we like to pretend that we're all in this world together, I had a very clear experience where I was like, oh, 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 we don't live in the same life. And that came from... I had a white friend who I was trying to bring into the fold. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm trying to figure out if this person is down. <laughs> Can I... she be down? 
I, I totally And not get from it. a perspective, like this wasn't a person who, she was a coworker of mine who grew into more. We became really close friends, but it wasn't like she was like the coolest. She just was a genuine person and I've got to know her and I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. So I said to myself, here's how we're going to, here's how we're going to dip our toe into this. I'm going <laughs> to invite you to a party at my house. I've been to all these events at her place. I had been to dinners. I'd been to brunches. I had done all these things with amongst her white friends. And I was like, you know, here's your little test. You can come to toe. my house. Put your little toe, toe in, in it. Put the toe in. So she came to my house for this party and I could see the level of shock. I could see the levels. Like it kind of like she walks in and she looks around and then she was like, okay, okay. Now the parties that I threw at my house in Harlem on 124th and Lenox, okay, (laughs) (laughs) were I would cook all day. I would have folks coming in. We'd have, but it was always my black, like my black glitterati friends. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yes. I, I exactly know. I Damien was in there. Like, exactly. My glitter-rati. black glitterati friends, corporate people, DJs, people who are like artists, like, you know, my black glitterati friends sprinkled with my white friends. <laughs> like, oh, okay. You cool. You can come. You're not going to embarrass me. You, you, you all good. And, um, Later when I spoke to her about it, because I recognized she was a little bit uncomfortable, but later when I actually had a conversation with her about it, what I recognized was that in the same way that when I showed up at her events, I was the only Black person. Mm -hmm. And she had only seen me in white spaces, like our job was all predominantly white, et cetera, that she thought that in my life... I was also the only black person <laughs> or like I was the minority in my own life. Do you know what I'm I saying? mean, there, there's some people, there's some black people who curate their lives in that way, but she had you mistaken. Yeah, no, she got me fucked up. So yeah. like my point was like, oh, so because white people have so little imagination and have not studied the way that black people being a minority have had to study to ensure we didn't get the back the black hand side of stuff yes. like you have yes. to study your the person who's sort of oppressing you to make yes. sure that you understand that oppression and oh so you can live and survive yes. yeah. and because they've never had to do that their imagination about what our lives are like is very limited and this is before, you know, there was shows for them to watch about it. <laughs> and, and so her feeling like she was, oh my God, I am the minority. I am the white person or one of two or three white people in this black space playing the gap band in the background. Outstanding. Like, shout out to Charlie Because you got to play it because you have to play it. Because you have to. Gathering. But like, that was interesting to her. And I think once I recognized that there is a there is a true ignorance and that that ignorance is oftentimes study that ignorance is not you know accidental but there is a true ignorance of what black lives are like on a regular basis outside of them watching a color purple and crying but like there's a true ignorance about what today's black people's lives are like and their imaginations are that when we dream our dreams are all white people too the same way that their <laughs> dreams are but when I think about when we were talking earlier, when I think about the two things that 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 
different world syndrome of white people and black people and the fact that we spend so much more time thinking about them than they actually think about us. I think when I recognized those two things, it freed me to navigate more easily in white spaces. Because one, I understand that they don't even know, they are looking at me like I am from space. Like I am not anything that they understand or can experience. And so I don't worry about their opinions. (laughs) And two, their gaze does not bother me as much because I am not as concerned. I recognize that they're not worried about me. I, I'm, I'm, we are so much more focused on white people than white people are focused on us. They should be more focused See, on I us. See, I disagree. I think we are more fluent in white people, but yes. we think about white people a lot less than they think we do. Like, I, actually, I, think I don't know if I agree I think, with that. I think your friend example is just that, right? Like, I think, well, maybe this is what it is. I think they think we center them in our lives much more than we do. Like, that is true. But what I'm saying is more that the conversations that they are having on a regular basis do not involve blackness, black people, black things. Not at They're all. not worried about jo- the new black guy to, who came to the because it's, it's not, not tied exactly. to their survival. Exactly. So like when we, but when we have conversations about white people, it is tied to black survival. So I would almost argue that our conversations are more about black survival. They don't have to have conversations about white survival. That's what I would argue. But we, I I don't, they don't navigate in that same way where they worry about navigating amongst us. We constantly have to think, learn, and understand how to navigate against them. So, but what I'm saying is that once I recognized that they were not worried about me and I was going to have to go get my things, go get my coins, go Mm -hmm. get my flowers, go get all Mm -hmm. the things that I wanted on my own. And it it freed me up. It freed me up Mm -hmm. because I wasn't so worried about what they were thinking about me. Because oftentimes what what keeps you having this difficulty of navigating white spaces is that sort of syndrome that a lot of Black folks have, which is if I mess up, if I do something wrong, if I say the wrong thing, then they are thinking that, well, that's how all Black people are. You are representation of your entire race. And so it becomes really challenging to navigate or take any risks for fear that, the white gaze is judging you. Yeah. And but, my my baseline is the white gaze is judging you. So the fuck what? Like my baseline <laughs> is like, it, they are judging you. So we, we you come can't from control different directions, but we land in the same yeah. place. Like, and you can't control fucking. that. Like they are judging you. You can't fucking control that. You might as well be yourself. <laughs> right. Fuck it. Exactly. Like it's funny. The uh, When I worked at Walmart, I worked, you know, I remember wearing a head wrap to work for the first time. And I remember a black person saying to me, we can wear head wraps to work. <laughs> That's said, real. I don't know. I'm, I'm already here. Like what? <laughs> That's real. That is real. <laughs> is there a rule I should know about? <laughs> like, but, but to me, the important part was I didn't ask for permission. I'm not worried about them looking at me. I'm not worried about that gaze. Right. Yeah. So to me, it was just do like, I always say, you know, start as you mean to go on. That's a big principle for me is like, I start as I mean to go on. So what you get that first day, that's what, you know, you're going <laughs> to get the whole time. But I mean, can you imagine like, that's the crazy thing. Like we have the Crown Act, which, you know, um, there are states that have, have banned dis- hair discrimination 
Uh, but the fact that we are still fighting in 2021 <sighs> to be able to wear our hair however we want it wear without risk of losing our jobs is 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 wild. Girl, let me tell you something. The only time I have ever been on CNN. Wait, you were on CNN? Interviewed Ooh, I by see a this major clip. news organization was about my hair. Really? I'm a black woman with accolades, Ivy League degrees, <laughs> you know, t- conquering industries, becoming <laughs> all these things. And they and were the like, only so time- do you call that a flat twist? <laughs> Is it a flat twist? <laughs> They're like, is that a Gumby? <laughs> like, literally the only time I've ever been on CNN with all of this background behind me was CNN interviewing me about my hair. What it is to be a Black woman with a natural hair style in corporate America and how and why and, and can we touch it? And like, you know, this that's the only time I've ever been. Isn't that crazy? Because, you know, when we think about what do we lose in, in whatever we're calling it, code switching, assimilating, whatever, whatever, is the time. It's a fucking distraction, as Toni Morrison so beautifully put. It is the time. The time that we spend having to explain and comfort and, ugh, <laughs> it's too well, much. Yeah, no. And that's what all the research about code switching is about. It's about the tax that it builds into your minority and people of color and Black folks. Tax that we don't get paid for. We don't no. get paid extra. Absolutely. That's why I'm like, run me my coins. You want to hear about this flat twist? Run me my coins. You want to hear about what clipper I went? Flat twist. I use a wall clipper. Send me my money. Like that's that's the that's the thing. And that's when I, you know, I think I'm to a point where what are tactics to navigate these spaces? And mine are like avoid them. Um and, I, and I'll provide context, but it's, and also create other spaces. I'm really right now at this point of like, how do we create our own? How do we turn the gaze on ourselves? How do we um, make it about us? You know, uh, how do we celebrate our own institutions? How do we, you know, that's, that's kind of where I am versus like trying to find more ways to make white people comfortable. So I'm I'm curious, uh, Felicia, for you, like, have you ever intentionally, like, sort of decided you were actively not going to code switch <laughs> in a situation in a white space where you had to be, like, all blackity black? <laughs> you <laughs> Let know, somebody know. <laughs> you know, so it's, do you remember that, like, video that was going around? It was, like, in a convenience store. And it was a white guy talking a lot of shit to a black dude. And the black dude was like, taking it, taking it, taking it. And then finally just hits the white dude with the, with the soda can. I don't know if you ever saw. <laughs> no, no, I so, <laughs> Is this video going around? And that's the other thing, too, is that there's not a lot of space for black rage, right? Um, and we're just supposed to take it, take it, take it. Take it, take it, take yeah. it. And that's the other thing um, when I think about like sometimes just the need to avoid white spaces is because I might be caught on a bad day. Yeah. You know what I mean? And things can turn left. So there actually was a situation. Just one of um, those days. 
<laughs> I was headed to work. I drove into the parking lot and it was a white woman like trying to park or something and her dog ran out. But I saw her dog and saw her dog. She got her dog. So I'm starting to park and she's just talking a lot of trash. Initially, I ignore her. About what? About the way you were parking? or About her dog. My dog. Blah, blah, blah. You didn't see my dog. I'm like, I see your dog. It's fine. So I keep parking and then she just keeps talking shit. And the one thing that Karens do very well is that they play aggressor and victim at the same time. Oh. Right. So she's being aggressive towards me um, while also being the victim of a situation that is non-existent. So she keeps going, she keeps going. And so I just am triggered and I get out the fucking car. And I'm like, we about to do this? And when I... <laughs> She, she was like, was like offer her oh my assistance God. with you're, her dog. <laughs> you're, you're, you're being aggressive. You are harassing me. Stop harassing me. Oh my goodness. I'm like, you talking shit. Like you got all this shit to say. What's up? And I had a moment where I was like, Felicia, you are at your job. Get back in the car. I think it was my, one of my ancestors was like, get back in the car. They just be tapping you on your shoulder. They, oh, my my mom used to say they pull your coattail. I mean, she, (laughs) uh -uh. she pulled me by my bald head was like, get back in the car. (laughs) Yes. It took a lot out of me to get back in the car. So I get back in the car. I end up parking. Guess who I get into the elevator with and her dog. And when I say this white woman acts like nothing happened, she acts like nothing happened. (sighs) There's already these cameras and elevators, so you know you can't handle your business. So that made me even, I just was so, and so then, you know, when we talk about the cost, I get to work and I'm pissed. I'm upset. I'm distracted. And it was unnecessary. It was completely unnecessary. Um, So that's when I was like, okay, (laughs) you need to, this is a liability. Like you need to find ways to uh, de-escalate. Right. For myself, not for this person, because I'm making a choice that I don't want to catch a charge. That's the choice I'm making. I'm not even centering her. I'm centering myself. Um, But and then one of the ways then also, in addition to de-escalating, preventative is like, okay, yes, I can't prevent this at work, but I can prevent this in trying to avoid these types of, of spaces. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. I had a similar situation where people just was trying me on a particular day. And look, I'm not proud of this because, you know, in corporate situations, you cannot, you you can't just be threatening folks as showing up. (laughs) It's not not the way things are done. Okay. But sometimes it should be. Exactly. You know what I mean? I think people would act different (laughs) if they got knocked out. But that's a different topic. But I just feel like there's just too much shit talking and not enough people getting knocked out. Like, go ahead. (laughs) Continue. No, it's true. You know, Mike Tyson said everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> in the face. <laughs> like, that's what it is. I had a you know very corporate job. We had a team of other women, and I've also found, let's be clear, that the Karen thing. I've just even before it was named Karens, I've just had a thing with. Sometimes white women can just be, like, I mean, yes. You think that you you go back and you look at those old videos of. 
of, you know, people at the civil rights marches throwing, you know, things or being, but the white women were just so crazy in those ways. And I've oftentimes felt like sometimes really wary of white women in work situations. Yes. At one point, now listen, I'm not proud of this because it, you know, but I'm going to tell you what happened. I fell asleep in a meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm going to tell you the truth of what happened because it happened. (laughs) I fell asleep in a meeting. It was a long meeting. We had these long six-hour meetings because we were doing this massive implementation. We need to talk about the workplace. But I'm just saying, like, I fell asleep in the meeting. One of those things where you just close your eyes for a second, like, Lord, I just need, I need three seconds (laughs) of a moment where I can roll my eyes in the back of my head and rest them. I'm just resting my eyes. I'm just resting my eyes. You know, open my eyes figured out the parts that I had to do and, you know, finished out the meeting. Everything was good. But a couple of days later, I heard people talking. Somebody came to me and said, oh, this girl who was on my, this woman who was on my team, she's a peer of mine, was telling people that you were asleep in the meeting. Like, was talking about me behind my back, basically. So she was, you know, telling the story. So they had heard it from several different places. So they came back and they were like, yo, no, they didn't say yo because they were also white. <laughs> <laughs> but that's but I but that's great that they told you that they shared what was going was on. Was it because oftentimes it's also just breeding mm. seeds of enmity. So you don't mm. know what their motivations were in uh, saying. Okay, it, right? I feel that. I feel that. But they came and they were like, She's talking about you. And I was like, Word. <laughs> And for some reason, I got really, really upset because it was, I was new to this organization. I had been there probably like maybe three months. And so I hadn't really had a chance to meet everybody and do all these things to kind of develop my own reputation and my own brand. Mm. So that kind of thing can really be detrimental mm. to your reputation in the long term. So I, conf- I decided I was going to confront her about it. So I waited till late in the evening after everybody had left. She was the only person left in the office and so was I. <laughs> Because I'm not stupid. (laughs) And I went into her office, not in the hallways where the cameras are, (laughs) but I went into her office and I said, hey, I want to, can I talk to you for a second? And she was all like, hey, you know, not knowing that her own comrades had sold her out. So I came in and I sat down. I said, you know, I just want to preface this by saying, you know, I'm new to this organization and all I have here is my reputation. (laughs) Did you say it like that? Yeah. I said, all I have is my reputation. I said, I haven't had a chance to really do any major projects yet, go places, do things. All I have (laughs) is my reputation. (laughs) And I heard from several people that you have been telling people that I fell asleep in a meeting, that you've been going around sharing the story and laughing and kikiing and talking about me falling asleep in a meeting. And she said to me, well, you did fall asleep in the meeting. And I said, I don't care if I fall asleep in every meeting. <laughs> I said, I don't care if I lay out on the conference table in the middle of it, snuggle up in the fetal position and catch five Z's. I said, you, five Z's. what business is it of yours? I said, you are going to keep my name out your mouth. <laughs> and I believe I said mouth with an F. <laughs> That's the only way you can say it. I said, you're going to keep my name out your mouth or I'm going to see you outside. You want to see me outside? And she burst into tears. And I literally said, I thought not. 
And I turned around, <laughs> gave her good eye contact again. Like, listen, we will, I will see you outside on Madison Avenue. <laughs> Madison Avenue? <laughs> I'll see you. And I walked out of her office and closed the door quietly behind me. Packed up my now, things and now, went home. Now, a couple of questions. <laughs> you said you're not proud of it, but was I'm it not, effective? Incredibly so. Not only did she keep my name out of her mouth, <laughs> but like within six weeks, she had left the whole company. <laughs> she was like, oh, I'm out. <laughs> Look at this that. Is, this has gotten rougher than I expected. <laughs> this is not what I signed up for at <laughs> FIT. This is up. not... <laughs> at Parsons... <laughs> She wouldn't make eye contact with me at meetings anymore. Like she just, she would talk into her papers <laughs> like for the rest of the time that she was there. But then she left the company. But my point was, I'm not proud of it because I do not believe that threatening people is the answer, right? Yeah, and you don't like to be taken outside of yourself. I think that's the other thing. Exactly. I don't want to be outside my character, which unfortunately that is my character. But I don't (laughs) don't want to be, I don't want that part of me to be revealed to other people in ways that, in situations that I don't, I can't control or want. Yeah. I mean, I did take all the precautions. Like I said, I went into her office, I closed the door. (laughs) I knew she didn't have no nanny cams in there. (laughs) You know, the whole situation. I love the burst out in tears, like, But she burst into tears and was like, I just said, I didn't think it was that big of a, I didn't know what, first she tried to deny she said anything. Then she tried to like, she was like, oh, I didn't know it was a big deal to talk about it. I was like, gossiping, you know? So, but incredibly effective. I was so, I was angry and I don't like to act in anger. I'm the same way. Like I had a situation at a job where I was so angry that, you know, when you get angry, your eyes start to water. I was so angry that of the entitlement. I was so angry at the audacity. And I was so angry that I couldn't drag that bitch outside. (laughs) Literally, I wanted to drag. I was so angry that I could not fucking drag her outside. That's what I was really angry about, that I had to like, that I had to push down my, that my anger and my rage, that was justified. That's the other thing is that like, not only is there not a lot of space for black rage, but then there's no, we're, it's not justified ever, ever, yeah. ever. Uh, when all these incidents and uh, attacks and aggressions towards us, we're just supposed to take it. And most times when I have gone off on people, it felt good in the moment, but later I regretted it. Not usually because I was above. You mean in the workplace or in general? In the workplace. Oh, okay. But, but I, was I like, regretted general, it not sometimes. because of how that person interpreted it, but how it made the way around the office that suddenly, again, here was the aggressive black woman. Mm-hmm. Here was the, like, so whenever, whenever I try to act in the corporate world, when navigating white spaces, when being around white people, I try to act. I don't want to act out of anger. And that's, that by the way, is in and of itself oppressive, right? Yes. Because, because yes. white men will come in and kick a trash can across the conference room. And call everybody out their name. Exactly. And be it's, angry. And nobody's like, oh, well, you know, yeah. you know, Todd's out of control. <laughs> Todd, yeah. Todd's out of control. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. but that's, they'll just say he's passionate about his job. Mm-hmm. But with black women, it's like, oh, 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 see? So, I mean, I feel like we have solved 
Um, <laughs> We've solved racism. Racism <laughs> in this in this conversation. Of course, it was going to be black women to do it. Of course. Um, <laughs> A but black no, but girl I think we'll save the world. <laughs> but I think that's what it comes back to, you know, when we think about honeys is, you know, pouring inward, pouring into yourself. What what makes the most sense for you? What makes you happy? What keeps you going? What preserves your joy? Like that to me is those are the questions. And those are the things that I want us, want to see us and uh, and and honeys like us to be asking more of and to be answering. Um yeah. Absolutely. Well, until next time. Until next time. Always a pleasure. Child Please is brought to you by Honey Child. Episodes drop every other Tuesday. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, iHeart, Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, write a review, tell a friend. And to keep the conversation going, sign up for A Taste of Honey, our newsletter. You can find that at www.honey-child.com. That's honey-child.com. And follow us on Instagram at It's Honey Child. Hey, honeys. Honey Child is an independent boutique media and entertainment company run by Black women. We speak with love to an underserved audience, Black women 40 and over, or honeys as we call them. And we're not just bringing our own seats. We're building our own damn table, too. And we'd love for you to be a part of it. Become a Honey Insider. Support what you want to see in the world and receive exclusive access to what we're building. To learn more, head to our website at honey-child.com. Honey-child.com.